Chapter Seventeen of *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Seventeen: A Long Chase. The following morning, the weather was still and dull. Not a breath of wind ruffled the surface of the river. "'This is unfortunate,' Edmund said to his companion. "'Svein's galleys will row faster than we can go with oars alone, and though they may not know the dragon, they'll be sure that she's not one of their own ships. We must hope that they may attack us.' The day passed on without a sight of the galleys, but late in the afternoon they were seen in the distance. The dragon was moored near the middle of the river. Her oars were stowed away, and the crews ordered to keep below the bulwarks, and hoping that the Danes, seeing but few men about, and taking her for an easy prize, might attack her. When they approached within half a mile, the Danish galleys suddenly ceased rowing. "'What is that strange-looking vessel?' Svein asked the Northman, standing round him. "'I know her,' one of them said, for I have twice seen her before, to my cost. The first time she chased us hotly at the mouth of the Thames, destroying several of the vessels with which we were sailing in convoy. The next time was in the battle where King Alfred defeated us last year, nearly in the same water. She is a Saxon ship, wondrous fast and well handled. She did more damage in the battle than any four of her consorts. Were it not that I have other game in view, Svein said, we would have fight her, for we are two to one and strongly manned, and the Saxon can scarcely carry more men than one of our galleys. But she is not likely to be worth the lives she'd cost us to capture her. Therefore we'll e'en let her alone, which will be easy enough. For see that bank of sea-fog rolling up the river. Another ten minutes, and we shall not see across the deck. Give orders to the other galley to lay in oars till the fog comes then, to make for the left bank of the river, and to drift with the tide close inshore. Let none speak a word, and silence be kept until they hear my horn. I will follow the right bank till we reach the mouth. Freda was standing near and heard these orders with a sinking heart. She had no doubt that Edmund was on board the Saxon ship, and she had looked forward with confidence to be delivered from her captor. But now it seemed that owing to the evil change of the weather the hope was to be frustrated. Edmund and the Saxons had viewed with consternation the approach of the sea-fog. The instant it enveloped the ships the oars were got out, and they rowed in the direction of the Danish vessels, which they hoped would drop anchor when the fog reached them. Not a word was spoken on board the dragon. Edmund, Egbert, and Siegbert stood on the forecastle, intently listening for any sound which would betray the position of the Danes, but not a sound was to be heard. They had, they calculated, already reached the spot where the Danes should have been anchored, when from the left, but far away astern, a loud call in a woman's voice was heard. "'That must be Frida!' Edmund exclaimed. "'Turn the ship! They've passed us in the fog!' The dragon's head was turned, and she rode rapidly in the direction of the voice. No further sound was heard. Presently there was a sudden shock which threw everyone onto the deck. The dragon had run high on the low, muddy bank of the river. The tide was falling, and although for a few minutes the crew tried desperately to push her off, they soon found that their efforts were in vain, and it was not until the tide again rose high nine hours later that the dragon floated. Until morning broke nothing could be done, and even when it did so matters were not mended, for the fog was still dense. The disappointment of Edmund and Siegbert at the escape of the Danes was extreme. Their plans had been so well laid that when it was found that the dragon had arrived in time no doubts were entertained of the success of the enterprise. 
and to be foiled just when Freda seemed within reach, was a terrible disappointment. My only consolation, as Edmund said, as he paced the deck impatiently, side by side with Egbert, that this fog which delays us will also hinder the Danes. That may or may not be so, Egbert answered. It's evident that some on board the Danish ships must have recognized us, and that they were anxious to escape rather than fight. They draw so little water that they would not be afraid of the sandbanks off the mouth of the river, seeing that even if they strike them, they can jump out, lighten the boats, and push them off. And once well out at sea, it's probable that they may get clearer weather, for Siegbert tells me that the fog often lies thick at the mouths of these rivers, when it's clear enough in the open sea. When the tide again began to run out, Edmund determined at all risks to proceed to sea. The moorings were cast off from the shore, and the dragon suffered to drift down. Men with poles took their stations in her bows and sounded continually, while at her stern two anchors were prepared in readiness to drop at a moment's notice. Several times the water shoaled so much that Edmund was on the point of giving orders to drop the anchors, but each time it deepened again. So they continued drifting until they calculated that the tide must be nearly on the turn, and they then dropped anchor. It was much lighter now than it had been in the river, but it was still so misty that they could not see more than a hundred yards or so round the vessel. No change took place until night, and then Edmund, who had been too excited and anxious to sleep on the previous night, lay down to rest, ordering that he should be woke if any change took place in the weather. As the sun rose next morning the fog gradually lifted, and they were able to see where they were. Their head pointed west. Far away on their left could be seen a low line of coast. Not a sail was in sight, and indeed sails would have been useless, for the water was still unruffled by a breath of wind. The anchors were at once got up, and the oars manned, and the ship's head turned toward the shore. Two hours' rowing took them within a short distance of land, and, keeping about a mile out, they rowed to the west. The men, knowing how anxious was their leader to overtake the Danish galleys, rowed their hardest, relieving each other by turns, so that half the oars were constantly going. Without intermission they rowed until night set in, and then cast anchor. When the wind came, it was not until the third day, it was ahead, and instead of helping the dragon it greatly impeded its progress. So far they had seen nothing of the galleys, and had the mortification of knowing that in spite of all their efforts these were probably gaining ground upon them every day. Even without wind the galleys would row faster than the dragon and being so fully manned would be able to keep all their oars going, but against the wind their advantage would be increased greatly, for lying low in the water they would offer but little resistance to it, and would be able to make way at a brisk pace, while the dragon could scarcely move against it. The Saxon ship was off Calais when the breeze sprang up, and as it increased and their progress became slower and slower, Edmund held a consultation with his companions and was determined to run across the channel and lie in the mouth of the Thames till the wind turned. So long as it continued to blow they would lag farther and farther behind the chase, who might, moreover, enter any of the rivers in search of shelter or provisions, and so escape their pursuers altogether. Siegbert had never been up the Mediterranean, but he had talked with many Danes who had been. These had told him that the best course was to sail west to the extremity of England, then to steer due south until they came upon the north coast of Spain. They would follow this to its western extremity, then run south following the land till they came to a channel some ten miles wide, which formed the entrance of the Mediterranean. They decided, therefore, to follow this course, in hopes of interrupting the galleys there. 
they would thus avoid the dangerous navigation of the west coast of France, where they were known to be many islands and rocks, and around which the tides ran with great fury. For a fortnight the dragon lay wind-bound, then came two days of calm, and then, to their delight, the pennon on the top of the mast blew out from the east. They were lying in the mouth of the Colne, and would therefore have no difficulty in making the foreland, and with her sails set and her oars out, the dragon dashed away from her moorings. Swiftly they ran round the south-easterly point of England, and then flew before the breeze along the southern coast. On the third day they were off Land's End, and hauled her head to the south. The east wind held. The Bay of Biscay was calm, and after a rapid voyage they sighted the high lands of Spain ahead. Then they sheered to the west till they rounded its extremity, and then sailed down the coast of Spain. They put into a river for provisions, and the natives assembled in great numbers on the banks, with the evident intention of opposing a landing. But upon Egbert shouting that they were not Danes, but Saxons, and were ready to barter for the provisions they required, the natives allowed them to approach. There was no wrangling for terms. Cattle were purchased, the water-tanks filled up, and a few hours after entering the river the dragon was again under way. Rounding the southern point they followed the land. After a day's sailing they perceived land on their right, and gave a shout of joy at the thought that they had arrived at the entrance of the straits. At nightfall they dropped anchor. "'What are you looking at?' Sigbert Edmund asked, seeing the yar looking thoughtfully at the anchor chain as the ship swung round. "'I am thinking,' the jarl said, "'that we must have made some error. Do you not see that she rides just as we were sailing with her head to the northeast? That shows that the current is against us.' Well, "'Assuredly it does, but—' The current's a very slack one, for the ropes are not tight. But that agrees not, Siegbert said, with what I have been told. In the first place this channel points to the north-east, whereas I have heard the straits into the Mediterranean run due east. In the next place those who have been through have told me that there are no tides, as in the northern seas, but that the current runs ever, like a river, to the east. If that be so, Edmund said, we must have mistaken our way. For here what current there is runs to the west. Tomorrow morning, instead of proceeding farther, we'll cross to the opposite side, and we'll follow that down until we strike upon the right channel. In the morning sail was again made, and crossing what was really the Bay of Cadiz, they sailed on till they arrived at the mouth of the Straits. There was no doubt now that they were right. The width of the channel, its direction, and the steady current through it, all corresponded with what Siegbert had heard, and proceeding a mile along, they cast anchor. They soon opened communications with the natives, who, although speaking a tongue unknown to them, soon comprehended by their gestures, and the holding up of articles of barter, that their intentions were friendly. Trade was established, and there was now nothing to do but to await the coming of the galleys. I would, Edmund said, as when evening was closing he looked across the straits at the low hills on the opposite side, that this passage was narrower. Svan will doubtless have men on board his ship who have sailed in these seas before, and will not need to grope his way along as we have done. If he enters the straits at night, we shall see nothing of him, and the current runs so fast that he would sweep speedily by. It's possible, indeed, that he has already passed. If he continued to row down the shores of France all the time we were lying wind-bound, he would have had so long a start when the east wind began to blow that, although the galleys carry but little sail, they might well have been here some days before us. Sven would be anxious to join Hasting as soon as he could. The men would be thirsting for booty, and would make but short halt anywhere. 
I'll stay but a week. If in that time they come not, we will enter this southern sea and seek the fleet of Hastings. When we find that, we shall find Sven. But I fear that the search will be a long one, for these people speak not our tongue, and we shall have hard work in gaining tidings of the whereabouts of the Northmen's fleet. Day and night a vigilant watch was kept up from the masthead of the dragon, but without success. Each day they became more and more convinced that Sven must be ahead of them, and on the morning of the seventh day they lifted their anchor and proceeded through the straits. Many had been the consultations between Edmund and his friends, and it had been determined, at last, to sail direct for Rome. Siegbert knew that by sailing somewhat to the north of east, after issuing from the passage, they would in time arrive at Italy. At Rome there was a monastery of Saxon monks, and through them they would be able to obtain full information as to the doings and whereabouts of the squadron of Hastings. Scarcely were they through the straits than the wind, veering to the southeast, prevented them from making the course they had fixed on, but they were able to coast along by the shore of Spain. They put into several small ports as they cruised up, but could obtain no intelligence of the Danes being unable to converse except by signs. When they reached Marseilles they were pleased to meet with Franks, with whom they could converse, and hire a pilot acquainted with the coasts of the Mediterranean. They learned that Hastings and his fleet had harried the coasts of Provence and Italy, that the Genoese galleys had had several engagements with them, but had been worsted. The Danish fleet was now off the coast of Sicily, and the Northmen were ravaging that rich and fertile island. They were reported to have even threatened to ascend the Tiber and to burn Rome. Having obtained the services of a man who spoke both the Italian and Frankish tongues, Edmund started again. He first went to Genoa, as he thought that the people there might be dispatching another fleet against the Northmen, in which case he would have joined himself to them, but on his arrival there he was well entertained by the Genoese, when they learned through the interpreter who they were, and that they had come from England as enemies of the Danes. Edmund and his Saxons were much surprised at the splendor of Genoa, which immensely surpassed anything they had hitherto seen in the magnificence of its buildings, the dress and appearance of its inhabitants, the variety of the goods displayed by the traders, and the wealth and luxury which distinguished it. It was indeed their first sight of civilization, and Edmund felt how vastly behind was northern Europe, and understood for the first time Alfred's extreme eagerness to raise the condition of his people. On the other hand, the Genoese were surprised at the dress and appearance of the Saxons. The crew of the dragon were picked men, in their strength and stature, the width of their soldiers and the muscles of their arms, and, above all, their fair hair and blue eyes, greatly astonished the Genoese. Edmund and his companions might have remained in Genoa and received entertainment and hospitality from its people for a long time. But after a stay of a day or two, having obtained the various stores necessary for their voyage, Edmund determined to proceed. Three of the young Genoese nobles, fired by the story which they heard of the adventures which the dragon had gone through, and desirous of taking part in any action which she might fight against the Danes, begged leave to accompany them. Edmund gladly acceded to the request, as their presence would be of great utility in other ports at which the dragon might touch. At Genoa, Edmund procured garments for his men similar to those worn by the Italian soldiers and sailors, and here he sold to the gold and silversmiths a large number of articles of value which they had captured from the Danes, or with which the Count Eudes and his people of Paris had presented them. The dragon differed but little in appearance from the galleys of the Genoese, 
and Edmund determined when he approached the shores when the Northmen were plundering to pass as a Genoese ship, for should the news come to Sven's eyes that a Saxon galley was in the Mediterranean, it might put him on his guard, as he would believe that she was specially in pursuit of his own vessel. On arriving at the mouth of the Tiber, the dragon ascended the river and anchored under the walls of the imperial city. The Genoese nobles had many friends and relations there, and Edmund, Egbert, and Siegbert were at once installed as guests in a stately palace. The Pope, upon hearing that the strange galley which had anchored in the river was a Saxon, sent an invitation to its commander to visit him, and Edmund and his kinsmen were taken by their Italian friends to his presence. The Pope received them most graciously, and after inquiring after King Alfred and the state of things in England, asked how it was that a Saxon ship has made so long a voyage. Edmund explained that he was in search of a Danish damsel, who had once shown him great kindness, and who had been carried off from her father by one of the Vikings of Hastings' fleet. When he said that they had taken part in the defence of Paris, the Holy Father told him that he now recognised his name, for that a full account of the siege had been sent to him by one of the monks there, and that he had spoken much of the valour of a Saxon captain and the crew of his galley, to whom, indeed, their successful resistance to the Northmen was in no slight degree due. "'Would I could aid you, my son, in your enterprise against these northern pirates! The depredations which they are committing on the shores of Italy are terrible indeed, and we are powerless to resist them. They have even threatened to ascend the Tiber and attack Rome, and though I trust that we might resist their attacks, yet rather than such misfortune as a siege should fall upon my people, I have paid a large sum of money to the leader of the Northmen to abstain from coming hither. But I know that the greed of these pirates does but increase with their gains, and that ere long we may see their pagan banner floated before our walls. A few galleys I could man and place under your orders, but, in truth, the people of this town are not skilled in naval fighting. I have already endeavoured to unite the states of Genoa, Pisa, and Venice against them, for it is only by common effort that we can hope to overwhelm these wolves of the sea. Edmund expressed his thanks to the Pope for his offer, but said that he would rather proceed with the dragon alone. She is to the full as swift as the Northmen's vessels, he said, and although I would right gladly join any great fleet which might be assembled for an attack upon them, I would rather proceed alone than with a few other ships. Not being strong enough to attack their whole armament, I must depend upon stratagem to capture the galley of which I am specially in pursuit, and will, with your permission, set out as soon as I have transformed my ship, so that she will pass muster as a galley of Genoa or Venice. The Holy Father gave orders that every assistance should be afforded to Edmund to carry out his designs, and the next morning a large number of artisans and workmen took possession of the dragon. She was painted from stem to stern with bright colours. Carved woodwork was added to her forecastle and poop, and a great deal of gilding overlaid upon her. The shape of her bow was altered, and so transformed was she that none would have known her for the vessel which had entered the Tiber, and she would have passed without observation as a galley of Genoa. A number of prisoners accustomed to row in the state galleys were placed on board to work the oars, thus leaving the whole of the crew available for fighting purposes, and a state officer was put in command of these galley slaves. The ship was well stored with provisions, and after a farewell interview with the Pope, Edmund and his companions returned on board ship, and the dragon took her way down the river. The fleet of the Northmen was at Palermo, and keeping under the land, the Saxon ship sailed down the coast to Calabria, and at night crossed near the mouth of the Straits to the shore of Sicily. 
They entered a quiet bay, and Edmund, dressed as a Dane, with the two Northmen who had accompanied him from Paris, landed and journeyed on foot to Palermo. Everywhere they came upon scenes similar to those with which they were familiar in France. Villages burned and destroyed, houses deserted, orchards and crops wasted, and a country destitute of inhabitants, all having fled to the mountains to escape the invader. They did not meet with a single person upon their journey. When they approached Palermo they waited until nightfall, and then boldly entered the town. Here the most intense state of misery prevailed. Many of the inhabitants had fled before the arrival of the Danes, but those who remained were kept in a state of cruel subjection by their conquerors, who brutally oppressed and ill-used them, making free with all their possessions and treating them as slaves. The Danes entered into conversation with some of their countrymen, and, professing to have that evening but newly arrived from home, learned much of the disposition of the fleet of the Northmen. They pretended that they were desirous of joining the galleys under the command of Svein, and were told that these had arrived three weeks before, and were now absent, with some others, on the southern side of the island. Having obtained this information, Edmund and his companions started without delay to rejoin the dragon. Upon reaching her she at once put to sea. Palermo was passed in the night, and the vessel held her way down the western coast of Sicily. She was now under sail alone, and each night lay up at anchor, in order that she might not pass the Danish galleys unobserved. On the third day after passing Palermo, several galleys were seen riding off a small port. The wind was very light, and after a consultation with his friends, Edmund determined to simulate flight, so as to tempt the Danes to pursue, for with so light a breeze their smaller galleys would row faster than the dragon. Besides, it was possible that Svein might be on shore. It was early morning when the Danish galleys were seen, and apparently the crews were still asleep, for no movement on board was visible, and the dragon sailed back round a projecting point of land and then cast anchor. It was so important to learn whether Svein was with Freda on board his ship, or whether, as was likely, he had established himself on shore, that it was decided it would be better to send the two Danes to reconnoiter, before determining what plan should be adopted. End of chapter 17 Recording by Mike Harris